Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Today, I have Peter Montoya with us. He is a leadership development expert, keynote speaker, and best-selling author. So welcome to the show. Tyler, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, pumped to have you on. Um, so the first question I always like to ask is, when you were younger, and I'm on your website, I did a little bit of research prior, did you, um, did you see yourself where you are today at all, like kinda, or like were you just completely thinking something different? I wanted to either be president of the United States or a movie director, that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> okay, based on your website, I feel like you're kinda. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The leadership part's there, I think. In a way, in a roundabout way. It wasn't until college that I kind of got bitten by the personal development bug um, and yeah. really wanted to become um, a speaker. And the great irony was I took a public speaking class at college, and I was horrible. I mean, I was awful. Like, I stood up there, and I stuttered, and my knees knocked, and I was holding yeah. the piece of paper, and it actually shook. Um, and I'm sure of the 30 people in that class, no one ever would have thought that I would have become a professional paid speaker. Uh, <laughs> now I've made over $2 million in professional speaking key fees in my career, and no one would have guessed that guy became a professional speaker. Yeah. Well, I would, a lot of our listeners, like, that's why they write books is for, like, public speaking to help them, like, build their career. So mm -hmm. based on, because you just said that, like, what, how did you go from that to becoming like a very powerful speaker? Because yeah, a lot lots of and lots of practice. So my first job, um, I went to University of California, Irvine, and got a degree in political science. And I, I have, my skin is way too thin for politics. And also, I just don't have any stomach for the Machiavelli nature of politics, the kind of horse trading which yeah. over people. I, I just, I, 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 can't, I, I would always do the right thing. And that's not how you make it in politics. Yeah. Um, and so I went to work for the world's biggest motivational speaker back in the day. And more or less, I was a front man. And uh, it's called a field sales representative. And as a front man, you more or less go to wherever the speaker's going to go two months in advance. And you usually do uh, meetings for sales teams. So they would give me 10 meetings a week in front of car dealerships and realtors and insurance agencies and financial advisors. You go before them for 35 or 45 minutes, give them some content, give them some ideas and say, hey, if you like this, the big guy's coming into town and now give me $189 and you'd actually sell tickets. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is probably one of the best, some of the best experience to really cut your teeth in yeah. both professional speaking and also what they call selling from the front of the room. Uh, yeah. so you, get, you develop a lot of confidence very quickly. You get tons of practice. You're speaking two to three times a day. You learn sales, you learn marketing, you learn commitment, you learn responsibility, and you learn how to hustle. Yeah, that's a common theme I feel like with people that end up becoming successful later on is their first kind of gig is in some, it's very interactive with people. Like my, mine was door to door sales. Oh, wow. Like I, I was uh, selling. Nice? No, so, so, <laughs> I was, I went to South Carolina and we did painting. So oh. like it was, we were called student painters. And that like, was my college job. Super really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's unbelievable. That's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's how it all. And I'm still actually a little bit shaky on stages in front of a group, but door, like one on one, door to door, 
I mean, I, I've knocked on probably 10,000 plus doors, you know, so I got that. It was a, a, a very cost-effective, low-cost way of, of building both your sales skills and getting new business. So yeah, I was a student painter and basically paid for college by painting. Um, and then also one of my other, one of the other managers got a, got a job for Tony Robbins in 1990. Okay. And then he's the one who gave me my foot in the door in 1991. I still talk to him today. His name is Scott Duffy. He's out, out there on the circuit still too. No way. So wait, was it the same? Was it the same founder? Uh, Steve, I'm blanking on his last name. Steve something. Of Steve he kind of franchised a little bit. Okay. So different different branches. They uh, the ones you know the original ones came out of Canada, I think, and they basically kind of franchised franchise ish okay. in the United States with different territories, different states going to different nice. managers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I had no idea. That's why I'm just so surprised. Like not. I have not met many other like people just randomly that were student painter Seth. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, yeah, or even know what it is exactly. Um, so then, how did so from that then you decided to create? You know, it says the high performance organization. So what what you teach is all about like potentially organizational culture and leadership throughout an organization. Yeah. So, you know, I, well, I've been an, a, a serial entrepreneur. So um, I've been a speaker, a trainer, an author. I've uh, owned advertising agencies, technology companies, insurance agencies, and even CrossFit gyms. So I, I've done and coffee shops. I've done a little bit of everything. And what I've always tried to do is to figure out, you know, what's the recipe? What makes high performance organizations? How can you get double digit growth uh, every year, even in bad years? Uh, and so I kind of, Oh, I've read probably like you a couple thousand books. Yeah. Uh, plus, I talk to every single person you you know, and I ask them what works and doesn't work. I more or less I had my own kind of renaissance in 2011, where you know my business never, businesses up until that time never exceeded my own personal production. So more or less, you know, there was a certain level of production which I could produce. I would never my business would get to a couple million dollars in sales and then kind of stop right there. Yeah. And so I really had to figure out how to get exponential growth out of an organization. Uh, is this model of more or less of turning everyone in an organization into a leader? And when you have a leadership culture, it is the best force multiplier you'll ever get out of a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is it kind of, um, well, there's a lot to it. I, I actually have a friend. He, he runs a company called Culture Matters. And he teaches uh, organizations how to build cultural alignment. And a lot of what he says, it's a little bit over my head. I'm like, so I kind of get it. Like, it, it's it's kind of like philosophical a little bit. Does it get does it get to that level with what you like? Because it's kind of like, how do you get a company that has over a hundred employees? How do you get all those employees on the same like direction? It's, it's, it's exactly it. So yeah. here's the, the fundamental distinction between management and leadership. And yeah. most businesses are being managed, not being led. So here's that distinction. Yeah. All of management is part of leadership. So everything you do in management is part of leadership. There's also a ton that is leadership that has nothing to do with management. Yeah. Uh, management is more or less teaching your people what to do. And, you know, there's a, a, a fair part of that. You teach people, you know, your systems and payroll and accounting um, and sales and marketing. And there, you know, there is some skill uh, teaching that has to happen in an organization. So management is teaching people what to do, but more or less, you will never get anybody working beyond what they're being managed to do. There is no system of compliance devised by a manager that your average line worker cannot outwit. They can yeah. always find a way uh, around whatever system of compliance you build. So leadership, on the other hand, 
is about teaching people how to think. And it's getting people to think in a way that they're actually bringing all of their passion, all of their creativity, all their inspiration, so they're actually building the business. So you've got to tap into their inherent drive rather than just trying to whip them into doing a certain amount of work. It just okay. will only get you so far today. So that's a philosophical difference. I'm not sure if it's the same when you're your distinction I've made. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And then and then, you know, going deeper into it, it's like, well, you know, how, how do you how do you kind of do that? And 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 so I'm curious. Do you kind of cover it in, in your book, The Ten Secrets of Leadership Power? Yeah, that was actually a little bit more about creating the leadership it factor. So, you know, when we look at those leaders who go, oh, my gosh, they have it and I want to follow them. That book is much more about those essential traits. Yeah. Uh, but now my new program, which is actually online, is a consulting program where we work with business leaders to help them actually in create this culture of performance. Um, yeah. There's actually 19 different modules and a whole different system and a way of doing that. But what's oh. kind of interesting, if you want some content, uh, I could probably share with you the, the five master values, yeah. uh, which are endemic to all organizations, whether they know it or not. Okay, yeah, I'm down for that. All right. So, uh, Tyler, have you ever done that exercise where you've been given 100 different value cards, and on that is like, you know, integrity and responsibility and kindness and patience, and you take those cards and you rank them to figure out what are your 10 most or five most or most important values? I think I've actually done some sort of quiz online that was something like that. I never did it with cards, but oh, yeah. it's kind of the same concept. So you know, there's a hundred different values that and a value, just so we're clear what a value is, a value is how we desire to behave. It's okay. how we hope that we behave when it comes down to crunch time. We hope that we are honest. We hope that we are responsible. We hope that we have good communication skills. So whatever those values are is how you desire to behave when uh, the winds when, when the winds in your face more, yeah. more or less uh, and these those value assessments kind of say okay well here's you know your three or four most important values it, it never made sense to me but i really think that all organizations in the united states who are building relationships and based on trust have five of the same master values and these mm. master values are kind of like your computer firmware they tell the rest of the computer how to handle all the other software how to operate so yeah. here are these five master values, which are consistent across any organization uh, in no particular order. Uh, number one is absolute responsibility, and that is to own the situation independent of blame or shame. And this concept was made very, very famous by uh, Jocko Willink, who talks yeah. about extreme ownership. Have you seen his, his TED Talk before? Uh, not, I've seen him, Joe Rogan interviewed him a couple right, times. Right, right, right. <laughs> he's, he's the ultimate Navy SEAL. He's got the gruff yeah. voice, the big giant muscles, the crew yeah. cut, you know, it's all intense. You should definitely, everyone should listen to or watch his uh, TED, TED Talk. Just go to YouTube and yeah. search Ted, uh, Jocko Willink, and his TED Talk is absolutely amazing. It does a great job of explaining what ownership really means. It means you don't blame anybody else. You, you just basically own the situation, and we cannot change what we do not own. And as soon as we have the situation, we are really gaining empowerment to make the changes. And so every single person in an organization needs to practice from a place of absolute responsibility. And once they do this, all of the you know, backbiting, infighting, drama, complaining, whining just dissipates. It is one of the greatest empowering forces to any organization. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. I, 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 I was, it makes a lot of sense because I think that's one of the hardest things for people is to go from avoiding responsibility to taking it because it seems like you're 
actually putting more on yourself. But when you do take ownership like that, it allows you to solve any problem. It does. Know? So it's a, it's a, a very you gotta strange look. dichotomy that taking yeah. responsibility, owning the outcome is actually liberating. Yeah. Uh, not confining. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, number two is integrity. And most people have a, a sense of what integrity is, but it's, integrity actually has four pillars. The first one you know, which is honesty, you got to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is keeping your agreements. And the most important person in the world you have to keep your agreements with is yourself. Yeah. So, <laughs> there is nothing worse than you telling yourself you're going to work out, you're going to eat right, you're going to work a certain amount of hours, you're going to do a certain thing and then not do it. It erodes. It is a cancer to your confidence and to your esteem. So integrity is highly important because what it does is it builds not only your confidence in the organization, when everyone's doing what they say they're going to do, it, it gives you a huge confidence in your organization to do bigger things. Yeah. And more importantly, it gives you self-confidence when you do what you say you're going to do. It's really, really important. Mm -hmm. The third part of integrity is being high character or high valued. Um, and that one, the easiest way of looking at it is you want to make sure that you're always in a win-win. And every relationship that you have, like you and I right now, we want to make sure that both parties are winning, both getting more value than we're giving uh, mm -hmm. is kind of the mantra of any really good leader. So anytime you have an interaction, you have four scenarios. Win-win, um, I win, you win. Win-lose, I win, you lose. You know, I'm, getting, I'm gaining at your expense. Lose-win, I lose, you win. And the fourth possibility is the worst, which is lose-lose. And that's yeah. what happens with a lot of countries around the world where they, they go to war and it's a big loss for everybody. Yeah. So leaders, we really want to make sure that we're in win-win relationships all the way around. Mm -hmm. um, and then the fourth part of integrity is that of being whole. So the word integrity comes from the word integris, which is a Latin word, which means to be whole. Um, we as leaders have a responsibility to be constantly curating our issues. So our issues are anytime that we are hurt or angry or upset we can't let those things fester because what they do is they permeate both our mood and our decision-making and usually we'll lash out and hurt somebody else, ourselves or other. Mm -hmm. So hurt people, hurt people or hurt people will hurt people. So being in high integrity means you're constantly curating any um, stressful energy that you have, getting it out of your system, processing it, forgiving yourself and or other people's so you're not carrying that stuff around, which eventually is going to pop up like a weasel out of a hole and have you hurting somebody else in some way. Because it dramatically distorts your reality um, when you're in pain on a regular basis. So integrity is a second master value. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think, I can't remember where I, I, it was like a tweet or something. There was a tweet saying like the only way to become a billionaire is through trust, which mm -hmm. I guess is like, you know, if you build a, a really good app, there's like five or six people that did that, you know, but other mm -hmm. than, that, <laughs> um, you know, trust is so essential to, to grow because without it, it's just, you'll, you'll eventually hit a roadblock. There's just, there's no way to, to do it. Yeah. It's next to impossible to have a cooperative relationship if I'm always winning and you're always losing. So if I sell you an app or a product or a, a donkey yeah. uh, or whatever, <laughs> And, you know, it doesn't go well for you when you feel you've lost. You're not going to come back and buy something else from me. It's yeah. really hard to become a billionaire with only selling people one thing one time. You want them to become clients and buy from you multiple times. 
So doing what you say you will do is absolutely critical to generating wealth in our innovation slash relationship driven economy. Yeah, and I, I really love, I think it's an article, his name's Kevin Kelly, I think, A Thousand True Fans. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, it no. Basically, it just talks about like, a lot of times people are always going after new customers that like, that's just like the natural marketing mind. Whereas, you know, part of marketing is actually just over delivering for your clients so much so that they become a true fan. And what right. that really means is that they truly loved the entirety of the experience of working with you. And when you have a thousand of those people, even just one is actually a great start. Um, but if you have a thousand, you know, word of mouth can start to really take over and it kind of just becomes a referral system in a sense. Um, so. Great idea. Couldn't, couldn't yeah. agree more. I'll, I'll find that article. That's really good. Yeah, yeah a thousand truth. You want to hear a couple more? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, number three is a commitment to meritocracy. So a meritocracy is where the best ideas win and the best people advance. And unless you have an organizational culture that is dedicated to meritocracy, you usually get political infighting. So, you know, well, this is not completely true, but let's just say there's only two systems in, in a business right now, a meritocracy and or political. And a yeah. political organization is where certain people or certain factions are farting for their interests over the interests of the whole. Yeah. So a meritocracy basically says, you know, our clients, our organization, more people win first than any one faction or any one individual. So meritocracy is absolutely critical to organization. Yeah, I from the, from my friends that work in corporations, I won't say their names or the corporations because probably not appropriate. But I, it seems to me like a lot of corporations don't work that way. Like I, or, or at least the employee doesn't feel like they're in the position they deserve to be. And this is from you know people that I've heard from that people advance for reasons other than their Marriage. yeah yeah. So and that is so. I don't understand why that would ever be, but maybe you do. Politics, man. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what happens when you don't have a commitment to meritocracy. You have to have a commitment to it. You got to create a culture around it. Uh, yeah. and that most senior people may not get promoted. It means that some people have a really great idea, but isn't the best idea, doesn't advance. It's kind of a cold way of looking at decision making. Uh, however, it is long term what's best for the organization. Uh, and so that's part of what we put into um, our high-performance organizations is this commitment to a meritocracy, especially when they're small and growing. To make sure when they're large, they're not making decisions that are political. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah, it needs to because it'll it'll be like a cancer, like you said on one of the previous ones. Because then you have all your employees saying how they deserve to be in different places. I <laughs> <laughs> won't go well for long. But so yeah, go ahead. We're on number four, right? Number four is humility. Humility is a master value, and there's four realizations that go into humility. Let me get, see if I can remember all four, uh, all, all four of the realizations. Uh, number one is the realization uh, that you are not perfect and you never will be. That's a really important realization. The only things in our society that we have to protect are the things that are perfect. So, you know, if you think about what's perfect, well, the sculpture of David, the Mona Lisa, the song Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. I mean, <laughs> it really is only pieces of artwork. And there's no human being on the planet who is perfect. Uh, there's no other process on the planet. Everything is in a, in, a, in a perpetual state of renewal. We're trying to constantly make things better. And as soon as you realize there's nothing to protect, you can actually look at yourself to make better improvements. So that's mm -hmm. the number one realization of humility. 
Uh, a second uh, realization of humility is to realize you have no more or less value than any other human being on the planet. Mm. You might be in an organization and have more authority than other people, but you don't have more value than other people on the, on the planet or inside your organization. Uh, the third realization with humility um, is to realize, oh gosh, I forgot. Give me a second here. Yeah, no, you're good. Little, little hamster wheel in my mind is turning. We're off the cuff right now, so this is yeah, cool. off the cuff. <laughs> uh, is uh, re recognizing uh, to, to, to admit your admit mistakes as soon as to the moment that you make them. Mm. So if you make a mistake, I I make you know, a dozen mistakes a day, and when I make a mistake, I say I'm wrong, and I want to say that as close to the moment as possible, both to preserve the relationship I have with the person I made a mistake with, and also for my own edification. So I'm constantly, you know, not getting hung up in being wrong or making a mistake. I just want to make the best decisions possible. Yeah. Those are the realizations of uh, humility. Mm, got it. Okay. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> It's one of those things that's much easier said than done. Uh, but yeah, yeah well, and you know, I think it's really important to to, to say it to to like put it into words like that. Like, there's a guy named Jordan Peterson. He's a psychologist. I, I know Jordan very well. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, some people would say that he dissects things too much, but I I think it's kind of necessary. It's you know, like I've never heard somebody like dissect something in so many different details where you think of every angle of like uh, and and yeah it can be a little over the top but i find it useful i'm like i've never thought about it in those thousand ways you know about just making a right turn he's <laughs> you know like, he really so i find it to be amazing but yeah i enjoy 90 percent of his work i really really enjoy i find a lot of it and there's about 10 to 50 percent i'm going what are you thinking <laughs> yeah. so there's about 10 to 50 percent i just it's not like i go there's other authors who i follow like sam harris i really like sam harris a lot yeah it's like 10 to 50 percent i go okay this is not quite for me the other 85 i like a lot with yeah. jordan peterson that 10 or 50 percent it's like i think you're completely off the deep end that's awesome we could do an all, all other show on that i i'm actually <laughs> in the middle of maps of meaning right now Good that, you. that is um that that's going to take me a while it's so it's tough. heavy stuff yeah, I uh, uh, twelve rules for life was pretty easy for me. Like, I, in comparison, I should say not, but um, but I, that's how I started to get into philosophers and stuff like Nietzsche, Carl Jung. Carl mm -hmm. Jung, I, I do not, I can't really understand what he's talking about. But uh, Nietzsche, yeah, I, he's another one too, where I, you know, sixty, seventy percent I really agree with, and another twenty or thirty percent is like, oh my gosh, you are so wrong. For, well, for me, it's, it's like 80%. I don't know if I agree with it because I, <laughs> <Guys, can't even laughs> I tried to listen to, uh, I'm blanking on the title, but Carl Jung's, I think it's mo his most famous work and um, the psychology of the subconscious mind, I think. And I just was doing it on audible and I, I would go on my morning walks and I would listen and I'd, I realized I did it for a few weeks and I'd get home and I'd be like, I have not one clue what he just said. Right. Yeah, so I had to get the physical, and, and that's what I do with Maps of Meaning, is I listen while I uh, read the physical, because right. I need both, um, which, uh, either way. it's a really good idea, and I think it's a very admirable trait. Well done to actually dig into that material and stretch your brain that way. That's very good. Yeah, appreciate it, man. I enjoy it in some weird way. <laughs> so, yeah. a little bit of intellectual masochism for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! Um, oh yeah. So wait, cliffhanger. So there's a fifth one. Yeah. There's a fifth one. Uh, the five most fifth most important master value for order all organizations is 
skepticism. Mm, okay. Have you heard that term before? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So skepticism is more or less a commitment to find the facts and the truth. So every single model of decision-making, cooperation, collaborative decision-making all starts with a common understanding of what the facts are. And when you have people in an organization or an organization that denies the facts, you have massive chaos on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing right now in the United States is there is a set of facts and there is a set of what we'll call alternative facts. You really shouldn't even use the word facts. A set yeah. of alternative information, which is trying to uh, pollute the original facts. Uh, and that's why when you get on social media these days, it is uh, basically a cold war. You're seeing people attacking each other because they cannot agree on what the facts are. It causes massive upheaval people, and a complete inability to solve problems. So good yeah. leaders have got to absolutely be committed uh, to knowing what the facts are. So the question uh, goes like this. Tyler, would you rather believe a happy fantasy or a hard truth? Hard truth. Yeah, me too. All, all day long. So just, if it's bad news, I just want to know the bad news so I can deal with it. I don't care how bad it is, just tell me. But there's a, a lot of people who I ask that question of, and they vacillate. And they go, oh, gee, I don't know. I think the happy fantasy, you know, don't, don't burst my bubble. I kind of <laughs> like the, the, the world that I live in. And the answer is okay. Uh, but it makes it really hard. You know, the whole idea is to make decisions based on hard reality uh, whenever possible. That's going to give you the best push off. Imagine if you were kind of a sprinter trying to pick up out of the, out of the running tracks and you're pushing on reality versus working on fuzzy things that may or may not be true. Yeah, just from historical data, happy fantasy, it, you, you can't, that doesn't work for the long term, I don't think, unless you're like Paris Hilton or something. <laughs> then the, <laughs> the fantasy is actually real. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't have to work. Things are going to be fine. <laughs> right, right. So, but yeah, no, I think when you're, at least for me, when I was younger, I was more of a happy fantasy. Like I'll figure it out later. Like I'm in the moment. I'm enjoying myself as a as a young person. <laughs> and then, uh, but at some point, you know, you gotta you gotta face the truth. And the truth is, you better figure out what the heck you're gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, there's a, you know, there's a large part of our society who does not, and by and large, their lives suffer. Yeah. So, um, one of my best models for understanding the world is to recognize that our brains are pattern recognition machines. Mm -hmm. Our brains both recognize patterns and also predict patterns. And when we're able to recognize patterns based on the truth, more or less, we want our internal minds, the map inside of our mind, to be as accurate to the external reality as possible. Because when we do that, we can actually predict the future. So, let me give you a, a quick example of patterns how they work in our minds. So Tyler, have you ever played a video game and gotten really good at it? Yeah. Yep. Name one video game that you've gotten really good at. Let's see if I know it. Crash Bandicoot. Do you know that? <laughs> I do not know it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. No. I, I don't. Gran Turismo is a okay, Gran Turismo. Great. Yeah. Perfect. So when you first start playing Gran Turismo, you're usually offline. You start at an easy level. And you have a hard time working the steering wheel, knowing when to brake. It's really hard in that virtual world to understand what speed looks like at first. And the more you play it, the better you get. And eventually, you're playing on the hard level. And the hard level is much harder than the easy level. Not only do they give you harder tracks, which have more twists and turns and more stopping and starting, but you have more competitors who move quicker than you are. Maybe it becomes easier for you to crash on the hard levels, and yet you still beat it. Why are you able to beat it on the hard levels? What have you gained? And the answer is the pattern. 
you know what's going to happen. You know how the car is going to move. You know when to brake, when to accelerate. You're able to, you know the pattern so well, you're able to predict it, and that's why you're able to beat the game at the harder levels, whereas the easier levels, you couldn't. Yeah, so essentially, to, to, to put that into action, the more action you take on things, then the more, and I would say thoughtful action, uh, not just like random spurts of action, but thoughtful action on things, then you, the more patterns you will actually recognize as you grow. And then yeah. that will make the more difficult things easier, which will then allow you to tackle more difficult things. <laughs> that's, that's basically it. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is to do what you are doing with putting books in your mind. I mean, yeah. there is that old adage, which is really hokey and it's true, uh, but leaders are readers. And the reason that reading is so incredibly effective is it gives you more patterns that you may not have actually lived through, but it actually gives you, starts giving you a framework in your mind or a map in your mind. So yeah. you actually encounter certain circumstances in marketing or in accounting or in psychology or in leadership. You already have an idea almost intuitively of knowing what to do or how to handle it even if you don't remember the step-by-step -step formula that an author wrote for you in a book. Exactly. But, um, yes. My recommendation is everyone should be reading 24 books a year if you want to be a leader to help you have better pattern recognition uh, inside of your mind that's just ready to deploy. And then the other thing, it also, it helps with complexity. You know, yeah. when you're a small kid, you can only handle games as complex as, you know, tic-tac-toe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I was five years old, it was a really hard game. But, you know, eventually you move on to chess, you work in you know, more complicated games, and the most successful people usually have are able to handle multiple layers of complexity that's intersecting itself in multiple different places. Or the whole matrix. Oh, I agree. And and the thing with reading too that one of the things that changed my life is uh, one of my mentors told me this. He said like you don't always read just to comprehend; you can read to think. Mm -hmm. So so because I feel like that it's it's almost actually for some people it's like a turnoff. To, to only try to comprehend something, right? Because I feel like that you go back to like middle school, high school, when they forced you to read books and then write a report about it and you didn't like the book. So like it just, at least that was my experience. <laughs> so, you, you know. a great adage. I like that a lot. I'm probably going to steal that and not give any, you or your yeah, credit. Take it. It's all yours. Like, because it's true. It's, it, if you allow yourself just to think like, I'm just going to digest this. It's the same thing with me, with Carl Jung. Like, although I did decide to get the physical book, even just me listening to him speak, even though I didn't understand a lick of it, like subconsciously, like it was getting in there somewhere. So we it, hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we hope. We can only hope. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I'm uh, optimistic on that. <laughs> Me too. Me too. There's lots of stuff that I read too that is way beyond my comprehension. I'm just doing everything I possibly can to hopefully get 10% of it with anyone. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so I wanted to ask you this too. Uh, so do you have like any routines that that you do like? Or, you know, like a daily ritual in the morning, night, or weekly, anything yeah, like that? Yeah, my routine is, is not nearly as good as it used to be uh, pre-COVID. Uh, it, it, it isn't nearly as complex as it used to be. I really yeah. work hard to get eight hours of sleep a night. That's a big one. I think sleep is really important. Uh, yeah. Number two, I try to eat right. Um, yeah. So eating, uh, I try to eat as many unprocessed foods as possible, as much real food as I possibly can, lean mm. meats, uh, fruits and vegetables, uh, some new, some seeds and nuts is kind of a like yeah. formula. Like paleo, kind of. 
paleo or the paleo acid. I just try to minimize processed food as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, and another part is, you know, I, I make sure that you are working the same hours each and every day. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have my kind of my big five, the big five things which are most important to me in moving the business forward. What are the five things that I can do and only I can do to move the business forward? I focus on those big five. Mm -hmm. uh, and I try to spend time with my wife uh, every single day if possible. I really enjoy that. Yeah. No, that's awesome, man. Well, look, I want to leave the floor to you. I feel like we could do an even longer one at some point, oh, but thank you. for for now, if there's anything else you want to share, feel free. And then um, website, book, or wherever people can stay connected with you. Yeah, my new program is called the High Performance Organization, and more or less what we do is we instill this formula, which I've been kind of alluding to here today, into an organization to give you a force multiplier, turn everyone from a you know, a employee to a conscious contributor who actually is bringing all of their passion and hearts to the business uh, to really move businesses forward. Uh, and that is an eight, two month program that you do with groups of, of business leaders at the same time. So working in a group and a team with other business leaders to instill these ideas to move your business forward. Mm -hmm. and, and you can and find that at petermontoya.com, petermontoya.com. Uh, and I also do um, webinars uh, every two weeks to talk about, I got the seven deadly sins of business leadership. Uh, I've made every single one of them multiple times and we share those, those sins and how to, how to correct them uh, in your business. And that's right up at the top of your website, right? Is it that sure is. Webinar? Gotcha. Perfect, man. Thank you again for coming on the show. Tyler, it was a thrill. You're a great host. Thank you so much. Unite show is sponsored by AuthorsUnite.com, your one-stop shop for becoming a profitable author and maximizing your impact.